um, an amazing Christian nation, formerly empire, uh, amazing history. Uh, they were never colonized by Europe. Um, they're the only African nation that defended themselves from European colonizers. That was Italy tried to invade them twice and they withstood. And the other thing is they're surrounded almost by uh, Islam and they were an island when Africa was almost entirely overrun by Islam. And, you know, they thrived in the middle of all that colonization, the Islamic um, invasions. So uh, amazing story. This is Global Storyline with your host, Dean W. Arnold, where we examine events current and past and place them in the Global Storyline. Our guest tonight is Matthew Bryan, uh, who is uh, an author uh, living in Memphis and uh, with uh, two children. Uh, He's uh, in the logistics industry. Uh, and he's the author of several books. Uh, one's called Superpower, Praying Like the Ancients. One's called Desperation, which is on addiction recovery. And one is on the, the 30-day prayer school, the best of E.M. Bounds for ADHD Christians. He's also the author of a book called The Forgotten Gospel, which I am reading now, which is highly recommended. Um, <clears throat> and he's also a prolific blogger. He's got a website, matthewbryan.net, uh, that has a number of tremendous uh, well-researched articles on historical things uh, and he wrote one recently on Ethiopia and that's uh, that's why I've had him, uh, brought him on the show this evening this article is entitled the curious case of Ethiopian Orthodoxy and uh, here's some basic facts about Ethiopia that if uh, you aren't aware of I'm going to share with you now because Ethiopia is an extremely unusual country and we're talking about global storylines on this podcast, uh, Ethiopia is a global storyline unto itself. Uh, let me list for you several unique things about Ethiopia and certainly its uh, Christian and religious history uh, and see if uh, how many of them you're aware of. Uh, <clears throat> it's arguably the first nation in the world that declared itself to be a Christian country. That happened at least by 325 AD. Um, uh, before becoming a Christian, uh, becoming a Christian country, Ethiopia's government uh, followed Moses and Judaism for over a thousand years, uh, beginning with the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon. Uh, we know that story from the Old Testament and them having a son together. Uh, most Ethiopians believe that the Ark of the Covenant actually ended up in Ethiopia. Uh, every church in Ethiopia has a little model of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and it's a major part of their um, belief system, their their history, their legend, their folklore. Uh, and then there's some modern scholars who uh, agree that that's the case. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that in a little more detail. Um, historical and DNA evidence points to the uh, strong possibility, uh, I'm persuaded, that the Garden of Eden was actually in Ethiopia. Uh, that's also part of their history and their folklore. Uh, the uh, Genesis account talks about uh, the Nile River. It's called the Gihon in, in Genesis, but the Nile River is one of the four rivers that comes out of the main river in Eden, and that main river uh, is likely associated with the Nile, which is the largest river in the world. Uh, beyond that, you've got DNA evidence. DNA scientists say that uh, the first human beings lived in Ethiopia. Uh, mitochondrial Eve is from Ethiopia. So uh, that's a unique thing for Ethiopia and their history. 
Uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is the largest, the uh, third largest Christian denomination in the entire world. You've got uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Orthodox, and then uh, Ethiopian. Um, Ethiopians have a very large and ancient uh, monastic tradition. They've operated a monastery in Jerusalem for thousands of years. Uh, the Book of Enoch was discovered, rediscovered there in the 15th or 16th century. Um, and also, uh, Ethiopia boasts the longest-lasting Christian monarch and dynasty, stretching from King Solomon's son, Menelik, in 1000 BC to Haile Selassie, who was deposed and killed in Ethiopia by communists in uh, 1974. So, quite a rich history. There's a longer list even than that to share, but uh, Ethiopia is a Christian treasure uh, that uh, we need to know about. Uh, so, Matthew Bryan has written this uh, book, uh, uh, or this article, uh, on the curious case of Ethiopian orthodoxy, and, uh, and he captured a lot of the cool things about Ethiopia, so we're going to talk to him today, and we're also going to talk uh, in detail about uh, why the Ethiopian church is not in communion with the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox Church, and what some of the technicalities are uh, in the church councils that caused that to happen. So, uh, <clears throat> and one little note before we move into bringing uh, Matthew on, uh, this is a, a introduction uh, after the fact because we had some technical problems in the podcast. The first ten minutes or so didn't make it, so I'm kind of doing a little recap here, um, and uh, and then we come in with Matthew talking about, I think, the Ark of the Covenant. So we'll take it from there. So uh, in talking about Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia, um, there was a uh, BBC journalist named Grant Hancock who in the early 1990s uh, wrote a book and did documentary and uh, talked about a, a pretty decent theory of how the Ark of the Covenant was in Ethiopia. And it raised quite a stir. And uh, a lot of people got very excited about it. And there was a there was scholarly debate on both sides as to, as to whether there was any validity to the theory, but he basically said that the Ark of the Covenant was swifted away from Jerusalem right before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 500 something BC, and uh, that it it was brought to a uh, an island in the middle of the Nile River uh, near Egypt for several hundred years, and there's a replica of the temple there, ancient ruins. It's kind of weird, you know, to have to explain that. And then a few hundred years later, when that area got um, endangered by, you know, certain types of armies, uh, it eventually made its way to Ethiopia. And, uh, of course, there is a very strong Ethiopian tradition that, that they do house the Ark of the Covenant. So that, that kind of reemerged uh, more, uh, more scholarly, factual, evidential uh, ideas about the idea of the Ark of the Covenant actually being in Ethiopia. Uh, and you go ahead and tell us about the... Uh, uh, the Ethiopian uh, documents or uh, histories that, that, that give that story. Correct. That's the uh, called the Hebrew Nagast. Um, what's fascinating to me is that the removal of the Ark, uh, to my knowledge, is nowhere in the scriptures. You would think that that would be a, a prime point that would be included when that happened, uh, where it went. But it's, it's not in there. Uh, the Hebrew Nagast, however, is an Ethiopian uh, I think they call it a, a, a national treasure. Um, they consider it their, their history. It dates back to at least 1200 AD, and of course they believe it dates far further back than that. The Kibana Gas, it literally means the glory of kings, and it's a very enjoyable read, whether you take, take it as 
fact or take an interesting read. It, it is very enjoyable. It goes into the, the visit of the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of Saba is how they would pronounce it. Um, Saba being one of the cities uh, both in Ethiopia and then a similarly named city on, in the um, Arabian Peninsula, which was part of the Aksumite Empire, the Ethiopian Empire. Ethiopian Empire stretched from Ethiopia across much of Sudan, Eritrea, and even the Southern Arabian Peninsula. Um, it, it's a very interesting read, very enjoyable about what happened between the Queen of Saba and Solomon, and then her son going back as an adult and meeting his father for the first time, and how they believe that the uh, Ark was brought back with him by him, his servants. It's it's a it's a pretty involved story, but uh, it's definitely worth reading. And and here's how the here's how the story goes. Um, the story goes that uh, of course the, the the Queen of Sheba and Solomon had a child. His name was Menelik, and uh, when uh, uh, Sheba and Menelik brought Judaism, I'm not sure what the proper term there is, but the the, the religion of Moses to uh, Ethiopia. And when Menelik became an adult, he went go back. He went back to Jerusalem to uh, meet his father. And uh, and after he was done, Solomon. Uh, sent the high priest Zadok and a bunch of other priests and a whole retinue of people with Menelik to go back to Ethiopia to really establish the religion and, you know, his uh, a portion of his Solomonic dynasty there in Ethiopia. And according to the Kibra Nagast, uh, the, this Ethiopian tradition says that Zadok was uh, frustrated with the uh, corruption that was going on in Solomon's empire. And if you read the scriptures, you do see that Solomon turned uh, into an apostate somewhat later in his life. And so that Zadok was disgusted with that. And so he made a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, took the real Ark of the Covenant with him to Ethiopia with Menelik, and left the replica there in Jerusalem. Solomon didn't find out about it until later in life. He was upset about it, but he just didn't say anything about it and kept and 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 it stayed a secret that way. And so that the real Ark of the Covenant came with Zadok and Menelik to Ethiopia in a thousand A.D. And that is uh, that is the Ethiopian story. Um, now, to me, it makes more sense if the Ark of the Covenant is actually going to be in Ethiopia that it got swifted away right before the Babylonians. Um, invaded, and they had to take it to a safe place, and it eventually made it to the second largest expression of uh, Judaism in the world besides Jerusalem, which was Ethiopia at the time. So that makes more sense to me, but that is that is the uh, that's the Ethiopian tradition, and it's uh, you know it's it is a fun read, like you say, um, but but you have to uh, you know there's a there's a part of the story where I think the queen or some some woman in the story her foot turns into a donkey's foot you know and uh you know and you know it's 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 hard to take the story literally however if you believe in the bible you know you got talking donkeys and you got talking snakes and you know you got all sorts of weird things floating axe heads and and whatever so you can't necessarily uh say that the uh tradition's not true just because there's a you know a couple of crazy nutty stories in it uh but that is but that is how that tradition goes um uh so Thank you for sharing that. So there is this tradition of the Ark of the Covenant associated with Ethiopia. Every church in Ethiopia, and there's thousands of them all over the country, uh, ha uh, are required to have a replica of the Ark of the Covenant in the altar of the church. Uh, what's that? 
a tabo tablet t-a-b-o-t yeah 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 exactly um and so that's uh that's part of their tradition um now i was talking to someone today about this in preparation for this interview and it's interesting that if you believe the ark of the covenant is in ethiopia um uh it, it's or even if it's not, it, it's it's very interesting that Ethiopians uh, are Orthodox Christians, so they are worshiping Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're venerating uh, Christ's mother Mary, and that's where all the attention is. They also they're also very uh, enamored with the Ark of the Covenant, but they don't worship the Ark of the Covenant, and they're not they're not uh, Jewish uh, believers. You know they they they've moved into the fullness of worshiping God, which is the Holy Trinity and Jesus Christ. So, uh, whatever you think about where the Ark is, and l- literally they have they they keep the Ark in its proper context, which we, you know I think is kind of interesting. All right, let's talk about one more topic before we get into the uh, 451 Monophysite heresy, um, and that is that the Garden of Eden uh, is arguably in Ethiopia. Um, now Ethiopia has its legends that the that the Garden of Eden is there, um, which various countries have that legend. So you you know that you have to kind of take that for what it's worth. Um, but there's some other pieces of evidence that are compelling. One is that Ethiopia is at the source of the Nile, and the Nile is one of the rivers mentioned uh, for the four rivers that flow out of Eden. Um, and uh, it's actually, in the scriptures, it's called Gihon, but it's pretty clear from scriptures and looking at Josephus and other scholars that the Gih- Gihon is the Nile. And, uh, and these four rivers came out of a great river, uh, and the Nile is the, is the largest river on the planet. So uh, Ethiopia is at the source of the Nile, so for there you've got some, some decent clues. And then... Uh, the kicker for me is that uh, DNA research shows that what they call mitochondrial Eve, or the source of where all human beings started from, is right in Ethiopia. Uh, of course, they found Lucy and these other strange skulls in Ethiopia, too. I don't take much account in that. I'm not into that but uh, so much. But um, So for a lot of different reasons, uh, uh, it's, it's arguable that the Garden of Eden itself started in Ethiopia. So it's another... Another feather in their cap. Any thoughts on that? No, I can't say I've uh, looked into that a whole lot. Um, yeah. The other thing that I find very interesting is the, uh, the the peace between relative peace between Islam and Christianity there in Ethiopia. Um, the Muslim era date back to um, Muhammad's time, and when he was at war with a particular clan, he sent his daughter and his daughter's husband to Ethiopia with some other. Muslims, and they gave them refuge, the Christians did, in Ethiopia, and uh, it said that Muhammad said that there would be peace with uh, Ethiopia as long as Ethiopia didn't take the take action against them. Um, so it, it's neat to see. It's one of the places where there isn't a whole lot of, uh, of violence between Muslims and Christians. You can look at other countries all around it, um, including Sudan, um, uh, trying to think off the top of my head. Um, Somalia. Yeah, Somalia, and, and then uh, to the south, uh, southeast. Um, Ken- have to Ken- look at my geography. Kenya. They have a whole lot more problem around Ethiopia than they do in Ethiopia, despite the fact that there is a very large population of Muslims there. It's the second largest uh, religion in Ethiopia. 
No, I agree with that. Uh, that's a, that is a, one of the interesting things about the country and um, something we can certainly, uh, we can learn from them. You know, here we are a, a, as a globe trying to figure out how to negotiate, you know, Islam and, and all the different things. And uh, here's a country right here that's dominated by Christians that has uh, figured out a way to do that. Um, they, they haven't been with... Say what? I missed what just you said. That there have been incidents. It's just not comparable at all to the nations around them. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, let's get into uh, why we are not, uh, or at least the Orthodox Christians are not in uh, communion with the Ethiopians, and where the uh, and the split that took place in 451 uh, <clears throat> over something called Monosophitism, uh, <laughs> and the. Uh, and separate that for us from the Nestorians, and uh, and tell us what happened. Okay. Well, I think it's important to note that Ethiopia was an empire um, in Christian in, in the early days of Christianity. So whether or not they were the first nation, um, they have easy claim to being the first empire uh, who ascribed to Christianity. So at the time of the Council of Nicaea, you had um, Ethiopia. As an empire, you had um, Rome as an empire, Persia, and then China. And China wasn't really at war with people because they were so far removed, but they were being traded with on the Silk Route, and they were known of. Um, but you had four empires, not just one, not just the Roman Empire. Um, Ethiopia was very strong. It was uh, the third largest empire at the time. Um, but it, again, wasn't at war with Persia or Rome because of geography, um, while Persia and Rome were almost always fighting with one another. So you had four empires, um, and then there's a city in Egypt, Alexandria. And Alexandria was very highly revered, had been for 600 years as a Jewish um, settlement, a Jewish place of learning. That's where the Jewish philosopher Philo uh, was born. That's where the uh, Greek Septuagint translation of the Jewish scriptures was created, was in Alexandria. And then you've got a line of bishops in Alexandria, starting from Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, all the way through to the Bishop Athanasius, who was the great hero of the Council of Nicaea, who very firmly uh, defended the Trinitarian doctrine. Um, so you just have this amazing city with a great history of honor. And at the Council of Chalcedon, so Dioscorus follows the Nicene Creed, and he follows the understanding of the Trinity and the Incarnation, and he specifically uses words that Cyril used um, for the incarnation, and that is mia physis, one nature. So Cyril said that the two natures were united in mia physis, in one nature, um, and then they used the, uh, the descriptors, um, unseparated, without confusion, without change, and these are Chalcedonian words. These are words that the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Empire um, also agree with, or Roman Catholic. But he claims this word, meophysis, that everybody else isn't comfortable with because there was a heresy at the time called monophysitism. Pronounce it differently, but uh, the monophysite idea that Jesus only had one nature, that he was no longer truly human, that the um, joining of the, the divine and the human nature, the divine overtook the human so that we could no longer actually refer to Jesus as having a human nature because he was monophysis, not meophysis but monophysis, that he only had one nature, instead of the two natures being united as one, without change, without separation, without confusion, 
which is the um, the orthodox understanding and one that Dioscorus actually uh, ascribed to. But he wanted to use the words miaphysis, and because of the monophysite heresy, and I can't think of the top of my head the name of the person who had been teaching it, uh, Eutyches, um, the monophysite heresy. Because of that, everybody else wasn't comfortable with it. They were demanding to say that it, he had two natures that were united without using the words that Cyril used, united miaphysis. So the miaphysite, um, Dioscorus was holding to that, and they called him forth, and they um, wanted to lay their accusations, and he just refused to come. He was there at the council, but then he refused to come when he was called for questioning. And so he was deposed, not because of his beliefs, because perhaps he could have defended them, but he didn't defend them. He didn't go forth, and because he didn't come forward when called at the council, for that reason, just that technical reason, he was deposed. Why, why didn't he go forward? Oh. I, no, I, I can't understand it. Um, presumably, he just thought it wouldn't be a fair trial. It wouldn't. There weren't enough people sympathetic to his view. Um, he certainly considered his view to be Cyrillian, to be of Cyril, and to be correct. But uh, whether he was right to do it or not, he refused to come forward for the accusations and questions. Okay. So in Egypt, in Alexandria, which is this ancient 600-year-old, by that time 700-year-old bastion of Judaism and Christianity with this excellent history of Philo and the Septuagint translation and bishops from Mark to Athanasius, most of the people in Egypt and Alexandria were sympathetic to Dioscorus. After all, Dioscorus was just using the words of Cyril, and so they think that a terrible thing has happened in Chalcedon, and they get upset, and they remain loyal to Dioscorus, who is banished. And then the empire, the Roman Empire, installs a new archbishop that most of the people in Alexandria and Egypt rejected as being someone who had been foisted upon them instead of their authentic and rightful bishop, Dioscorus. Uh, and then Egypt was sympathetic to them. Egypt had actually received their bishop structure. I'm sorry, Ethiopia had received their bishop structure from Egypt. Uh, Frumentius is the name of the person who came as a slave to Egypt, rose up through the ranks, serving the king, preaching the gospel to the king or emperor of the Ethiopian empire, and converting him. And then after he did so, he went up to uh, Egypt, to the archbishop in Egypt of Alexandria, and asked, and this was Athanasius himself, he asked Athanasius to send bishops, and Athanasius said, well, I make you a bishop, now go back. <laughs> he said there'd be nobody better. You're the one who's already been doing it. You're the one who lives there and loves there and has been effective. So they traced their bishops in Ethiopia back to Athanasius, the Archbishop of Alexandria, who was in the line of Cyril and Dioscorus. So when Dioscorus was rejected, the Ethiopians were sympathetic to Dioscorus. Um, oh, one more very fun to me is um, when Constantius, which is the son of Constantine, when he installed Eusebius of Nicomedia, an Arian, an open Arian, an open heretic in, in our modern understanding of Christianity, to the um, to the, the, the bishopric of Constantinople, well, he tried to send a new archbishop to Ethiopia because he didn't like the fact that Ethiopia was an Arian. And so when he sent his uh, new archbishop down to Ethiopia, he was utterly rejected and shipped back to sea. So at that time, Ethiopia was the only Orthodox Christian empire when Eusebius of Nicomedia had taken over Constantinople. Yeah, I think you, uh, I think you mentioned that in your article. Um, so the argument could be made that for a certain period of time um, in history, Ethiopia was the only 
place on the globe that was uh, preserving Trinitarian theology. I'm not sure if the Armenians would agree, but it was oh, definitely the, the only the Ar Trinitarian the Christian empire. The, the empire was the only one because you had Rome, which had fallen under Arianism by having an Arian at the head of their capital, that bishop. And then you had the Persians, who that empire was primarily pagan, and the Chinese empire. So, are the Armenians the are, the, are the Armenians Syrian uh, Oriental Orthodox, or they are different? They are Oriental, yes, sir. Okay, so so that's that's part of. Did they split off at Chalcedon or someplace different? They were sympathetic to Dioscorus. Um, at, at Chalcedon, it's not like nations. It's just that Dioscorus on that technicality was deposed, and those who were sympathetic to him and to those words of Cyril in particular that he was clinging to. Okay. So that would be the Armenian okay. and the Ethiopian. Yeah, we're having a little trouble here. Um, uh, are you there? I am. Okay, yeah, just a little, little delay. Uh, okay, let's go back and review, because everything you said was great, but it's a little complex. Um so that's okay. That's all right. Um, four eight, uh, four uh, fifty one A.D. Uh, Dioscorus from Alexandria um, is at the council where they are trying to um, hammer out the nature of Christ. Correct. Um, uh, one view says that Christ has two natures: a human and divine nature. Uh, another. Uh, group says he has only a divine nature which subsumes his human nature that was considered a heresy right that's monophysitism monophysitism um and uh monophysites um who was the champion of that view? was that okay is that, that's eutyches you said was the champion of that yes okay so that's the heresy but in the middle of that heresy uh Dioscorus, is that his name? Correct. Bishop of Alexandria. He uh, is calling the uh, concept of Christ having a divine and human nature miaphysite. Miaphysis, uh-huh. One nature. Uh, it's, it's that the two natures are united. It's not that one overtook the other, but that the two natures are united. And the... Physite, which is that the divine overtook the human. Okay, and the traditional Orthodox view on this is that Christ has a human nature and a divine nature, and they are together as one without confusion or commingling. Uh, I forget what the exact words are. Um, confusion, but, separation, and change. Yeah, so, so somehow they're united, but they're also, are they, they're, are they united or not? Is that the right word? Yes, the, the, the argument is whether they're united in one person or united in one nature. It, I, as best I can tell, it, it really is just splitting hairs. There, there's been talks between the Oriental and the Eastern Orthodox in modern years, especially in the uh, 80s and 90s. And they pretty much came to the conclusion that, hey, we're just splitting hairs. We really mean the same thing. We're using different words for the same truth. Problem is both the Oriental Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox have their traditions that they they rightly are proud of. They don't want to dishonor those that came before him, them, and those that came before them pronounced anathemas on each other. So even though they came doctrinally to agreement, for either one to look 
let the anathemas go aside, they feel like they would be dishonoring their predecessors, that they would be, in, in essence, anathematizing the, their own people in their own tradition in order to not anathematize the people of another tradition. Yeah, we'll have to get, like, all, yeah, we'll have to get all that sorted out now. It's because I am an Orthodox Christian, uh, I, 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 um, I submit to that tradition. And mm-hmm. I, and I believe that my elders are wiser than I am, and I and I uh, and I believe that uh, there's a reason why they uh, were splitting hairs, quote unquote. That those hairs do make a huge difference. Um, I'm not educated enough right now to talk about it, so um, uh, that's okay because um, I can't know everything, and nobody can know everything. That's why we that's why we submit to traditions. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that is, uh, but I. I like everything you're saying. I'm I'm fascinated by it. Uh, let's jump up and and just talk a little bit more about what you were saying that in the I think you said the 90s or whatever. But um, let's talk about in the in the recent past uh, what kind of uh, dialogue dialogue has taken place and what strides are being made to uh, bring the uh, uh, Ethiopian and Egyptian Christians, otherwise known as Oriental or um, Coptic or Syrian Christians back into the fold with uh, Eastern Orthodox? It was pretty much a golden era for discussion across different Christian traditions. You had some meetings prior to the uh, 1980s. You had some in uh, the 1960s and 70s that were on a lower scale of representation between each branch. But then in the 80s and 90s, you had high-level discussions, dialogue, um, some real movement towards unity, not only between the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox, but even between the Assyrian Christians who are from the Nestorian background, um, them speaking with Roman, speaking with Eastern Orthodox. It, it really, there was a lot of reason for optimism that it was going to be possible to have united communion again between the four ancient branches, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Oriental Orthodoxy, and Assyrian. But after the 1990s, it just no progress has been made. Um, and I could give you dates and stuff, but I, I really don't know a whole lot um, that is very interesting other than the fact that, hey, they actually sat down and they actually started getting along and coming to agreements. There was a lot of um, statements of joint, joint declarations of faith. Can you can you give any more detail? It's okay if you can't, um, about what you were saying that the, uh, the Ethiopians and the Coptics were, were saying that there was... Uh, basically there was confusion in terms of being lost in translation. There was no difference in theological belief. Correct. Um, yeah, Cyril is, uh, is respected um, in both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, both Chalcedonian traditions. Um, and he's, he's referred to as a saint, and he used those words, meophysis. And so when back and discuss it, it's kind of hard to hold somebody at fault for using Cyril's wording um, because they, they agree that Cyril is a saint. And um, it, I honestly think if monophysitism hadn't been the of the day, um, I, I don't think that there would have been a problem with using Cyril's words. If the two natures are united, and we agree that, we agree that the two natures are united in one person or the two natures are united in one nature, um, either way, it's the two natures are united, and both agree that they're united without confusion, without separation, and without change. 
Do, so, you, do you have any idea uh, what, where things are right now in 2016? Unfortunately, there, there hasn't been progress since the 1990s. Huh. I'd like to say that there was, but um, I think the, the big news lately was <laughs> the meeting between the Archbishop of uh, Russia and uh, the Roman Catholic Pope in Cuba. Was that a year ago, I think? I think that was the biggest of recent. There hasn't been much since the 1990s that's okay, happened. Yeah, so that's not, yeah, that's not really relevant. Um, uh, I, uh, I was in Ethiopia about uh, hmm, six months ago, and, uh, and I got to have lunch uh, and get to know the uh, head of uh, church history for um, uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And so we had lunch in Addis Ababa. And uh, it was a good time. Um, he's a sharp guy, uh, obviously. But he um, he said uh, that right now there's a big, uh, huge interest in Ethiopia with uh, Russian mystical theology. Guys huh. like uh, uh, Vladimir Lasky, I think, is, uh, is that his name? Um, and some others like that. And I know that there's a there's a push towards Russian things in the Ethiopian church. And so, you know, maybe we'll see some, uh, some more movements towards unity, uh, because of those things. You know, that would be my prayer. Um, I'd love, you know, I'd love to see uh, a unification of the, uh, Oriental and Eastern churches before my life is over. Um, so uh, I have a great love for the, for the Ethiopian church. And, and I really enjoyed it when I was there. Let me just tell you that my experience when I was there, uh, first of all, there's churches everywhere, and um, and uh, and they're packed. The churches are packed. Um, Wonderful. And they're packed with young people. Um, so there's a great future in Ethiopia. Now, um, there's a couple reasons why they're packed. One is because the Ethiopian Christian tradition is is alive and well and strong. But another reason they're packed is because they actually have people in Ethiopia. Um, because another one of my bandwagons is uh, population growth. Um, I'm a subscriber to um, Pat Buchanan's uh, thesis in his book, Death of the West, that uh, uh, Western civilization is dying because of demographics. We're losing wow. e economically and eventually politically to the East because the East is having children and the West is not. And uh, <clears throat> we have uh, believed the lies of Mar Margaret Sanger, and others who say that children are a burden, children are a problem, children cause poverty, this, that, and the other. Whereas the Bible tells us that um, a large population is a king's glory. The very first commandment is to be fruitful and multiply. It was never rescinded. And God, uh, God is God is a provider, and uh, he he provides for us. So um, we uh, we're supposed to do that. Um, and in our disobedience, we're seeing poverty and decline and all sorts of problems in the West. So um, uh, in Ethiopia, they have a growing population. They do in most of Africa, and they certainly do in Ethiopia. It used to be eight children uh, per woman was the average uh, in Africa. It's down to five now, uh, which is um, unfortunate. Um, but, you know, the population control people think that's good, but they're still, uh, they're still uh, very concerned about the five. But... Um, uh, Africa and Ethiopia uh, 
is having children. So in, in order to have your churches come, you know, really packed and, and filled to the brim, you got with young people, you got to have young people. So that's, <laughs> that's my, that's my point on that. But anyway, so my experience there was very exciting. It was, it was, it was great to see that, um, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a revival in, in Ethiopia, like you would in Russia, because there was a time there when Russia was obviously, run by atheists and you couldn't get into a church and maybe the population itself was not really uh, with, um, didn't have its heart and mind leaning toward God. Uh, I don't, I don't know if Ethiopia lost that, but uh, there's certainly a thriving, growing, ancient Christian Orthodox expression in Ethiopia. That's very, very exciting. I've also got some theories out there that I'm working on. I'm trying to get uh, an interview with someone talking about the future of Africa, just in terms of, you know, apart from Christianity, Africa uh, has a bright future in the world uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is population uh, because of demographics. Uh, Africa is the largest continent on the planet. Uh, hmm. Resources, uh, rare earth, oil, uh forestry, all sorts of things. Because of resources and population, there's a, a strong argument that uh, uh, Africa is, is a big part of our future. I think uh, I've got a quote from the Washington Post saying that uh, uh, as this century is going to be called the China century, uh, uh, the century after that could be arguably called the African century. Um, and so if Africa is going to be the future, and Ethiopian is sort of the heart and soul of Africa in terms of certainly Christianity, and maybe in general, uh, the African Union is is located in Ethiopia. It's it's in Addis Ababa, and so kind of like the United Nations is located in uh, uh, United States in New York, uh, all of Africa comes together on a regular basis uh, to discuss their issues in Ethiopia. So Ethiopia is the spiritual leader of Africa. Uh, it's the Christian leader of Africa. Um, and Africa, Africa could be the future. What'd you say? City on a hill, the Ethiopian plateau. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So uh, if if Africa is going to be the future of the world in a couple hundred years, then Ethiopia is a very important place. It's a very strategic country. So for all those reasons and others, I've got an interest in it. I've got this little uh, thing around my neck. Um, uh, this is an Ethiopian cross, uh, and uh, my, fa my father, who was a missionary in East Africa, gave me that a couple weeks before he died um, for Christmas. Oh. And he was a he was a Protestant Calvinist Reformed uh, 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 theologian with a doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. So it was uh, a <clears throat> you know pretty big deal for him to sure. embrace me being Orthodox. So uh, so I've also got this as part of my uh, Ethiopian drawl. Uh, and I'm considering writing a, 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 a history of Ethiopia. Um, I'd love to read it. Well, it might take me a little while, but uh, I'm, I'm working on it. Um, well, this has been a great talk. It's been uh, even enlightened me quite a bit, Matthew. Um, any other thoughts you've got before we uh, move along uh, here? No, it's just uh, it's an exciting untold story. So I'm glad you're doing the podcast and letting more people hear about um, an amazing Christian nation, formerly empire, uh, amazing history. Uh, they were never colonized by Europe. Um, they were the only African nation that defended themselves from European colonizers. That was Italy tried to invade them twice, and they withstood. And the other thing is they're surrounded almost by uh, Islam, and they were an island when Africa was almost entirely overrun by Islam. And you know, they thrived in the middle of all that colonization, the Islamic um, invasions. So 
uh, amazing story. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, uh, only the only country not to be colonized. Uh, uh, so uh, a lot of lot of pride there, uh, and rightly so. Um, now uh, I haven't mentioned yet that you have a website matthewbryan.net. I do. B r y a n matthewbryan.net. Uh, I encourage you to go to that website. He's got some, some uh, a bunch of articles, uh, very thoughtful articles uh, that I highly recommend. Uh, you have, uh, uh, do you have a book about the, um, kingdom of Jesus or is that just it's a actually long about article? The gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Okay. I didn't list that when I introduced you. Uh, uh, oh, that's all right. but, uh, I would, I would highly recommend that book's very interesting. Um, which basically, uh, in a gist, uh, puts emphasis on the word gospel having more to do with Christ as king and conqueror um, than sort of our modern notions of uh, if the gospel is about forgiving your sins. Um, not that the gospel doesn't include forgiving your sins, but uh, the whole notion of the gospel uh, and the word and what it means and what its largest context is, is that the king has arrived and he's here to take names and conquer. Amen. Glad he conquered me. Amen. Well, uh, on that note, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll cut out today. And uh, thanks so much for your time. And uh, it's, it's good being with you today, Matthew. Enjoyed it, Dean. Thank you.